Our guest today is Susan Kirkland of Resaca, Georgia. Susan has written four novels, her most latest, The Disposables, with Colorful Crow Publishing. I've gotten to know Susan because we've gone to a couple of writers' conference kinds of things together and spoken together as writers of the same publisher. And I think she has a lot to say about writing and about life. Her most recent book is The Disposables, and she's going to talk about her other novels as well and how she got into writing, which is very interesting. So I'm going to start with a really dumb question, Susan. What's your book about? <laughs> I wouldn't call that a dumb question. And again, it's, we kind have- of a, it's kind of a uh, lazy question. <laughs> well, The Disposable is about Andre, a young man who, um, through some unfortunate choices, became a victim of human trafficking. And as a result of that, he became a drug addict. But um, he decides to escape the gang that's had him. And when he does that, he ends up abandoning his infant daughter so the gang can't get her. He uh, moves away, starts to put his life together with the help of uh, some friends. And then police officers show up asking about a dead prostitute and a missing baby. And he has to decide if he's going to trust his new friends and the God they worship, or if he's going to go back to his Trusting his old life, his old self, and uh, depending on himself to get things done. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the core of it, but I think there are a lot of other things going on in there. And I know you don't want to give it too much away because that gives us the plot away. So I'm going to move into where did this story come from? What was the inspiration or your starting point uh, for this kind of story? Well, it actually started with... Another work in progress that is about Simone, and she's one of the minor characters in The Disposable. And as I was writing her story, um, Andre's a supporting character in it. It was just overwhelming. I felt I needed to explore his backstory. And as I started writing his backstory, I was like, oh, this is this is where this series begins. It begins with Andre and the the journey he finds himself on recovering from drugs um trying to find his place i guess in a typical society whereas you know before his life was very different and he was basically a slave and you know now he's faced with freedom and you know it's a whole new world for him basically so you know the more i the more i dove into that i just found that whole lifestyle, that whole trafficking is such a huge issue right now. And it's such a, a big talking point. And even if you're not a conspiracy theorist, you can see where this stuff happens and in the lives it destroys. Mm-hmm. Oh, it happens. I mean, yes. I had a, a couple of students, well, a, a student and his girlfriend, she was a student elsewhere. And they were in Atlanta at a venue and uh, traffickers trying to steal her and because she's a small girl and she looks young and uh, it would beat the guy up. It was it was scary, very hard. So, you know, it can it can happen expected. I met a woman at one of my uh, events and she was talking about how her daughter 
became a victim of uh, sex trafficking mm. through her boyfriend. And um, even though she eventually got away from it, the emotional damage and, and the scars from that have left her um, in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's been controversial this summer, too, the whole thing because of the Sound of Freedom mo- movie. Yes. And I think that woke a lot of people up uh, about this, which is is sad that it takes a movie to make us aware of what even goes on in our own state. Um, it is hundreds, hundred miles away or less from us. So, well, I believe Atlanta is one of the largest hubs for sex trafficking. Yeah, and when they had the Super Bowl there, I can't remember the year that was. The statistics were astronomical. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the hub of three interstates and the biggest airport in the world (laughs) yeah you know it is a place where people are constantly moving in and through so it's with all those people moving in and through it's easy to be under the radar and it's just so big and probably it's not a place where people think of it being that way no and i think a lot of people when you're discussing sex trafficking and human trafficking they're picturing kids or teenagers who look like they're being trafficked you know they're picturing fearful afraid and and they probably are but you know victims learn strong survival skills Mm -hmm. and um i get a little bit into that in in the other books you know because the reader eventually learns you know andre traveled and at some point he was trusted to travel by himself to meet clients and but I guess that goes back to the the Stockholm syndrome and, mm-hmm. you know, realizing that if he did something wrong, if he, he did something that includes someone that he wasn't in a good place, then, you know, he would be killed. Yeah. And that brings me to the to something about your book is uh, I think you've used the word gritty and it is gritty. <laughs> uh, it is while it is a book about. A faith and people experiencing the grace of God, what they go through is not exactly fun. No. It's kind of it's kind of real. <laughs> it is. And Andre's journey is not a slow one. It, you know, I, t- I tell people if they like bonnet romances, I'm probably not the writer for them. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get wrapped up in the disposable. There's yeah two other, possibly three other books to go through and you know even then the reader is going to meet his circle of friends who are believers and who have faith and they're going to discover they're not perfect either okay well and and you get into some areas about sexuality that are not uh definitely not by romance <laughs> you're the first person i've heard use that expression i think yeah that's I just kind of roll my eyes about those. I know people like them, you know, the the Amish thing. I guess that's what you're talking about. And maybe that's because they, they are fascinated by the Amish people and, and that kind of life. But that's definitely a genre that kind of surprises me that that are pot, is popular. Yeah. But you get into some some areas of sexual behavior that are definitely not something you're going to find in most Christian kind of books. No. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> And it was a little bit in times when I read it, I was like, 
Okay, where is this coming from, Susan? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't try to be, but I can be kind of a troll. And Uh, I like to step on toes and I'm not, I love Jesus. I cannot even list all the great things he's done for me, you know, aside from salvation. And as I read, read his word and I dig deep and deeper into it, I'm thinking, wow, we're missing the mark in a lot of places. And some of it, I don't know what to do with. I know you're probably referring to Rax, who... Um, yeah, yeah, Rax. <laughs> Rax and, and his boyfriend, who are... What's his boyfriend's name? Vance. Vance. Oh, my gosh. I wanted to slap him. I, oh, he was... He was you need to read book two. Vance gets what's now, not dream. <laughs> oh, so good. Because he was like... Um, what a... Oh, yeah. Well, and, and Rax's backstory... He wanted to serve God with everything he had. You know, his goal in life was to be a missionary. Uh, He learned Hebrew. He wouldn't. I have a scene that I'll probably post on my blog where he's memorized Psalm 119 Mm -hmm. during youth services. He's preaching and that that is his message. It's a dramatic reading of Psalm 119, he has a huge heart for God. And then his body and his feelings and his mind started getting a little wonky when he hit puberty. And, you know, he begs God and pleads with God, take this away from me. And he gets nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know people who have gone through that and his challenge is, you know, I don't know quite what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> At some point, I do have to address the uh, rainbow elephant in the sanctuary. But, you know, so he's he's left. He's walked away from his life of faith because he doesn't know if God can love him. Can, and that seems to be a recurring theme you know, as I researched that topic more, where, where people struggle with same-sex attraction and God's love. That, that's a really difficult one. And it's interesting that you're, that you're pursuing that. He, yeah, what I got from the book is that he, he struggled, but he just more or less said, he just rebelled and said, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, you know. But I, I, I assume that in the, Later books, you're going to get more into that he struggled with it. I'll go deeper into those struggles. And, um, you know, he becomes friends with Andre. Mm -hmm. And he knows enough to know that there are some problems only God can solve. And there Mm -hmm. are some people only God can help. And he's developed that connection with Andre. And I'll just say they're just friends. But he's got that rapport and now he's the only disciple that Andre really can talk to and get to know. So, yeah. you know, can God use someone who's running from him? Can God use somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction to reach people? That's a, it's a tough question, and it makes a lot of Christians, a lot of believers, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So let me ask, have, have you gotten pushback from people about that? Ever read the book? 
Am I allowed to ask that question? Oh, really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> he was like, you know, you went a little heavy on that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but interestingly, um, when we when a colorful crow was um talking to different Christian bookstores about having my book. They would, they didn't phrase it quite how I would phrase it, but I still thought it was funny. Uh, they went to one bookstore and they were like, it's about a, a, a male prostitute. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't think they, that's definitely not a bonnet romance. It's definitely not a bonnet romance. Um, yeah. And the bookstore didn't want to come straight out and say no, but they were like, you should have seen the look on their faces. And I'm like, I can picture it. <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll hold off on them. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the language is kind of rough too. So I, I don't think most what I'm thinking of like Lifeway is <laughs> gonna be is gonna be interested in it. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> it's interesting though, there's a uh, a British writer named and she's she's different, but her name is Susan Hollowich. I think that's how it's pronounced. And she writes a great deal about well she written historical things but she writes a great deal about spirituality and those kinds of things and her latest one which i have not read and it's little by latest i mean the last one that i'm aware of she kind of deals with the same a little bit of the same thing that this person who is a not so much traffic but a a male prostitute you know they they gave yeah. a different name but that's what it is and uh, the other characters are a priest, an Anglican priest who does therapy. And, you know, there's struggle there. One of these days, I'm going to read it, but I, I got my fill of her. <laughs> I read like three of them and that was, that was enough for that for that period. You know, so she so somebody else was dealing with the same kind of thing, but she's she's pretty. She's a little more high end as far as literary fiction. She's pretty gritty across the board. So but she's dealing with some of the same kinds of things. It's interesting what you said about Simone. Now, Simone is the woman who owns the airplane company. Right? Uh, Selma owns the airplane company. I'm sorry, Selma. The teenager, her parents own the horse farm. Oh, well, I'm so her. sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I got my names mixed up. Yeah. Okay. Um, I realized after I got attached to him that I probably shouldn't have two characters whose names begin with the same letter, but. Well, I'm written, I've written drafts. So I said they had two people the same same names <laughs> or I'm in a third series and I'm, I'm realizing that I'm getting, it's been a while since I wrote the second one. And it's like this, all right, these people, that's not their name. <laughs> that's not the same name in this, in this second book. You need to go back and find out their names <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And what kind, and what town they live in. That's uh, my, uh, my police officers, um, Gibson and Wright. I think they had six different names. As I was yeah. writing, because I knew yeah. I could remember what I named them, so I just throw new names in there. <laughs> I think that's why they have those those programs you can use, you know, for yeah. the little tabby sticky notes and things. <laughs> but anyway, so Simone. Okay, so I was thinking on a different level. She's the she's the girl who's raising horses and learning how to take care of horses on the farm, and yes, and she's very bright and all. So it was oh, so you originally started with her. But yes. then you 
you realize when the other, yeah, I can see that. I can see where that would, yeah. You'd have to know a lot about Andre before you could get to, to what she's doing. Yes. So. Uh, so she's an interesting character. She she grows up a lot in the next couple of books. And yeah. Uh, okay. Listeners, I love doing this podcast. I hope deeply that you also enjoy listening. As we bring this content free of charge, I have some requests that will help it continue. We have exceeded 2,000 listens for the 24 Yes and 30 episodes. That doesn't include the YouTube listens. And none of it would have happened without Clemencia Villafuerte, our producer. I have to say that. I depend on her a great deal. In some ways, that number's great because I don't do much advertising or promotion. I depend on listeners to repost on social media and for the guests to post the links on their websites. On the other hand, it's really pretty low as the podcast world goes. Really, really low. So I can't monetize it, at least not yet. That's good and bad. You all don't have to listen to random commercials about the who knows what. Yay! And I don't have any financial help. Boo. So here are the asks as the trendy people say now. I'm not sure what was wrong with the word requests, but number one, keep telling folks about this podcast. Even if it's just one that you particularly cared for, tell them about that one and they might get interested in the others. Of course, keep listening. Third, and here's the commercial part. Buy my books to offset the costs of the podcast. I don't talk about them much because I'm really terrible at marketing. I have several novels available on Amazon. You can look them up under Barbara G. Tucker or Barbara Graham Tucker, as in Graham Cracker, rolling my eyes. Or you can ask me for signed copies. The most recent, Sudden Future, by Colorful Crow Publishing, would make a great Christmas gift for a reader of any age. I will have another coming out before Christmas, Long Lost Justice. Others are Bringing Abundance Back, which I call the Southern Chicklet Book, Long Lost Family, a not-so-cozy mystery, Long Lost Promise, even less cozy. I haven't figured out how murders can be cozy. And The Unexpected Christmas Visitors, a story about refugees. All are on Kindle, too. Also, I have short Bible studies. I'm not at the GoFundMe point yet. Finally, buy the books of the folks I've interviewed here, or will. Luke Manjay of Ginseng Diggers, Becky Woolley, Ray Atkins, Katie Ballantyne, Devereaux Shivington Stebbins, Susan Kirkland, Renee Winchester, Carly Land, David Cady, Millicent Flake, Noah Knox Marshall, and Amber Nagel. You are a person interested in the artistic community of Chattanooga, Northwest Georgia, and beyond. Help them out. Thank you for listening to this commercial. So how many 
talk a little bit about your background and how you got into fiction writing, because that wasn't your original genre, so to speak. <laughs> well, originally, I was um, a journalist, a reporter and editor for more than 20 years. I really enjoyed that. I covered politics. Still one of my favorite things to um, discuss if it can be done civilly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So politics, crime. I love doing crime. Actually, I just enjoyed all of it. Okay. Except for uh, financial and budget stories. I hated those. My parents were both avid readers. So I grew up in a home with a lot of books and a lot of reading and just fell in love with it. I was writing, I remember writing stories, you know, in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And then in middle school and high school and <laughs> maybe if I'd spent more time studying. <laughs> but um, and so it just naturally progressed. I, I eventually said I have to do something with these stories and these characters. And, you know, let's see what let's see what happens. OK. But you, before you went into journalism or at the same time, you were in the military? Yes. It's either a funny story or your listeners are going to realize just how crazy I am. When I was in high school, I was in a JROTC, Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. And my little group of friends in that circle, we had a book club. And we would mostly, we read mostly military fiction. Hmm. And being in South Carolina, you just have to read Pat Conroy. Yeah, he's a native son of South, South Carolina. My all-time favorite writer. Mm-hmm. Well, my little JROTC group, we decided to read The Lords of Discipline, which was the book he wrote based on his time at the Citadel. Well, at the time, you know, I, I became fascinated with this book. The culture, everything just amazed me and I wanted to know if that's what life was like at military schools but the citadel was not taking women at the time but we had a student recruiter from North Georgia College now the University of North Georgia Senior Military College of Georgia come and speak to our JROTC class and I was hooked I think I turned in my application literally by the end of that week hmm. and uh you know my parents gave me their blessing um at the time i had actually been talking to the marine recruiter about enlisting in the marines and we were waiting for a photojournalism slot to open up before i signed all the paperwork in there but when that cadet came and talked to us i walked away from it i said no i am going there mm-hmm. and uh Ended up there. I did enlist in the National Guard. My first job with them was basically an administrative assistant. But then I eventually became a photojournalist with the Guard and a broadcast journalist when I left the Guard and went into the reserves. Okay. And I think I actually have two students this semester. It's both women who are one was in the Guard and one was in the reserve. And what exactly is the difference? The National Guard is governed by the states. Each state has their own National Guard. And then the 
Army Reserve, that is a branch of the federal army. Okay. Okay. So and and they can get deployed very easily. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Both branches can, can get deployed very easily. Okay. All right. So you went to North Georgia. And yes. it's interesting that you brought up Pat Conroy because I interviewed for this podcast Ray Atkins. He is and, wonderful. I love his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we had a good conversation. He's very funny. And he mentioned Pat Conroy as well, because I asked who were his inspiration. And that was one of them. That was the main one. He said, yes. So you went to North Georgia and you finished your degree there in English. In English. The wonderful thing about that was I went there. I went there for the military experience. Everyone there thought I was crazy. I was an out-of-state female who was not on any scholarship and I wasn't planning on commissioning. So they got quite sure what to make of me. My degree is in English. They actually did not have a journalism program. Uh-oh. I worked on the, uh, the staff on the college newspaper, The Voice, The Collegiate Voice. For most of my time there, I don't think I... I didn't work there my senior year just because of other things going on. While I was working on the newspaper, one of the cadets, a good friend of mine, encouraged me to enlist in the Guard and helped me get into the photojournalism field with them. Okay. And you have an interesting um, presentation you do about writing a novel on your lunch break. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Would you like to say something about that? <laughs> the lunch break novelist. Uh, yeah. How to how to get your book on paper when you're on a time budget. Uh, when I worked for the newspaper, I worked the Calhoun Times for many years as both a reporter and an editor. You know, we, we would have some downtime mm-hmm. and I would use that time, my lunch break, to work on my book. And it was pretty much written in 30 minute blocks of time with an occasional couple hours on the weekends or, you know, some nights when I felt like writing. So mm-hmm. it can be done. Yes. It's yeah. not a fast process, but it can be done. No. Well, it's not going to be a fast process anyway. People who don't write and who think it's going to be, oh, I'll just shot this off in a couple months. Well, you know, who knows what they're going to get? It might just be jotted off in a couple of months. It's going to be any good, which is, you know, there's a lot of times people don't don't appreciate how hard writing is. No, they they don't. Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard. And, uh, you know, they don't understand when... You know, you, you get that first draft and it's going to be a very rough first draft mm-hmm. down and and you're cleaning it up. And you're if you've got critique partners that you trust and they're helping you shape it and mold it, even after all of that's done, you know, you still need an editor. And I'm a firm believer in, you know, paying someone to edit my work. But I hear a lot of writers that they're like, no, my stuff's perfect. And why should I spend all that money, you know, for somebody to bleed all over my baby? And it's like, <laughs> well, 
you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you get a publisher, you get you get that, but you have to make sure it's good enough for a publisher in the first place. So, which yes. is which is the problem. Yeah. So you mentioned a writer's group or a critique group. So it, how does that work for you? What is your what is your process with that? Uh, my process right now, I am a member of uh, the Calhoun Area Writers Critique Group. We meet once a month and we usually bring, you know, maybe one or two chapters. We'll pass it out to the group and if we had brought stuff the month before, you know, most of us are returning members, then we'll get feedback on what we wrote before. Ah. And I tell new writers, because it can be intimidating. Yeah. When you have other people that you don't know reading your work. I mean, if you're letting your family and friends read your work, they're going to tell you it's great. Mm-hmm. And that's their job is to pet your ego. But then to turn it over to strangers. Yeah. But I tell new writers, number one, it's very, very important to get that feedback, especially from people you don't know, because your book's going to be going out to people you don't know. And my experience with critique groups, this may not always be the case, is the people in that group, they want you to succeed. And they want they want you to deliver the best possible manuscript you can because they are the first ones emotionally invested in your work. Uh-huh. They care about your characters. They care about the story. So, you know, it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to um, jump in there and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And if they're not that, then you need to get a different critique group. <laughs> exactly. I also tell new writers, you know, let's say there's five people in your critique group. Two of them, if one or two says the same thing, you can take it or leave it. Judge it on what you think. If you don't think their critique is uh, correct, then feel free to leave it. If you've got three or four saying the same thing, you probably need to listen. But there's going to be... There's going to be critiquers that you don't normally, that you don't mesh with, and that's okay. By the same token, there's going to be critiques, critiquers, I guess I should say, who they may deliver a harsh critique, but once you divorce yourself emotionally from your work and from what they said, you can look back on it objectively and say, you know, they were right about this. I wasn't. You know, I didn't see yeah. it from that point of view before. Mm-hmm. It's really, really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So, well, the thing is that you're you're inside your head, and it makes perfect sense to you. I try to explain this to my students. You know your world in your head. Yes, that doesn't matter. <laughs> right. If your world's not on the page, <laughs> in a sense, it doesn't exist from a writing standpoint. And if and then if it's on the page and people don't get it, they're not saying it, then you know, you it's that's a problem. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in writers groups, but they have to be they have to be interested in the work and the writing. If it's a matter of we're going to sip wine and and everybody tell us that 
whatever we wrote was wonderful. You know that. <laughs> that well, like, okay, that's not a writer's group. <laughs> so uh, at our last, uh, Call's last meeting, I got a really harsh critique. <laughs> uh, my feelings were hurt. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I know. I've been there. So I got home and one of our members had not been there that night and I sent her a message. I was like, I need my ego pet in. <laughs> I said, tell me you love my writing. <laughs> but then, you know, the, ne- you know, the next day when, when I finished licking my wounds and, and being all offended, I went back and I started reading the notes and I was like, this really does make a lot of sense. Not, not with everything. I didn't agree with her on everything, but quite a few of quite a few of her suggestions I did take and I did yeah. make changes and reading it it read much better mm-hmm. yeah the only time is when they have a totally different vision for what the work is and I've I've had that problem myself as a critiquer I'll give you an example there's a woman in my critique group and she's writing a really wonderful what I took to be dark dystopian YA kind of novel mm-hmm. and I was just blown away by how well she wrote and I was getting into it and you know I had some questions because it has a supernatural element and she brought some things that I wondered about but then she she took it in a totally different direction that I was just I still can't get my head around you know and and so I'm still I'm still struggling with it because it didn't seem to fit that YA dark dystopian thing. Okay. But I talked to one of the other members and he was able to kind of frame it a little differently for me. And I was like, okay, okay. I, I need to get out of what I'm thinking she's doing uh-huh. and get into what she is doing. <laughs> you know, she has a different vision for it than I do. And I don't get to tell her what my vision is and that hers is wrong because it's her book. So, uh, yeah, did that help? But the problem is I have not been going to, I've not been able to go to the meetings. We just do it electronically and then we have the meetings. And so I've just, so I've missed out on her on the discussion at that level. And that's, that's a problem. So I think the discussion is really vital yeah so that's that's my mistake that's my my gap okay well this is the part where i say to people what else you want to say (laughs) well one thing i did want to touch on um going back to the themes and the subject matter of the disposable and the redeemed series the whole i truly believe human trafficking and sex-based crimes, those are like Satan's nuclear weapons. Mm. The the destruction those things cause, and you know, even stepping away from the the human trafficking part and just looking at the sex-based crimes, those, the statistics are incredible. And, you know, it whether it's male and female or whatever combination, the the statistics of the crimes is 
just harrowing and it has such a deep ramifications. I mean, it it really does destroy part of a person's core. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's so easy to say, well, you just need to pray more or or yeah. something like that. And I'm not doubting prayer. I know the power of prayer. I know the power of God. I just believe that as humans and as believers, we need to do more. Uh And we need to recognize this as a spiritual battle, even above a physical or, or sexual conflict. It's just really been on my heart lately. I think the you were talking about Rex and Vance and how Vance is a jerk and yeah he is. Domestic violence issues in in gay couples is just as bad if not worse as between heterosexual yeah. couples. And uh, you know, I explored that a little bit as well. And you know, there's this whole population, all all these hurting people out there. And we want to focus on, I guess, the demographics and whether they fit our idea of who belongs in church rather than, you know, healing the sick and and feeding the poor without. There were no, no descriptors on those commands. It Mm -hmm. wasn't feed the people that you like. So that's one reason why I don't mind stepping on toes. Right. That's a good challenge. It really is. That that makes us all think. Yeah. And and I agree with you. I don't know how someone who is in that incredible abusive situation, it's beyond abusive, would heal without really long term help. I'll just put it that way. I don't I it's I don't know how that would be the case, especially as children or, but it can happen, you know, as as adults as well. We've been talking to Susan Kirkland and she has a heart and she's got a pen and a computer and and we haven't gotten into every aspect of her life, but uh, she has an interesting story. I think you should write about some of those other things. Maybe you will. And she's been talking just today about her fiction and how she got into writing and how she uses her creativity in that regard, especially in regard to a very important societal problem. So thank you for being with us today, Susan. Thank you for having me, Barbara. I've really enjoyed it. Okay, me too. I was going to tell everyone, you know, I do have a website. My books are available there. It's smkirkland.com. You can find me on Facebook. I think I'm Susan Kirkland author or SM Kirkland author. <laughs> and that's that's what we need. We need to remind people that we have written something and they should read it. Thank you all for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>